0: This is Stephanie Nelson, host of the Pivotal People podcast. We have great conversations with all kinds of interesting people who are making a difference in the world. Follow us and leave a review if you like this episode so that more people can find us. Thanks for listening. Well, I'd like to welcome Amanda Held Opelt to the Pivotal People podcast. And she was so gracious to agree to come on because she has just come out with this amazing book I have read it of course and it's her second book so I am ordering her first book as soon as we are off this podcast her new book is called holy unhappiness god goodness and the myth of the blessed life and her first book was called a hole in the world finding hope and rituals of grief and healing and she believes in the power of faith community ritual worship And shared stories to heal even our deepest wounds. She's a singer, a songwriter, and an author. And she's spent the past 15 years in the nonprofit and humanitarian aid sectors. So she has a lot of experience in the areas of happiness and grief and difficulties. And she and her husband live with their two daughters, I believe, in Boone, North Carolina. Fellow Southerner. I live in Georgia. Ah, Um, Okay. So, welcome. There's so much to talk about here. I have taken pages and pages of notes, but the goal is that Amanda is going to be doing the talking. So, I want to ask you a big question. But what inspired you to write this particular book? Your last book came out just a year ago.
1: Oh, my goodness. You know, Stephanie, to be honest with you, I've been working on this book, my second book, longer than I was working on my first book. This book has been really a work in progress, a labor of love, whatever you might call it for five or six years. And that's because I, gosh, I don't know. I'll give you the short version of the story. (laughs) The short version is that one day in my mid thirties, I woke up one morning and realized that I had basically everything I never wanted, you know, like my life was kind of following this script that I've been given of what a happy, blessed, you know, good life should look like, particularly one, you know, that a script I've been given uh, by my community of faith growing up. And so I kind of ticked all these boxes, right? Like I'd married a nice Christian boy. I had Gone to a Christian college. I'd found my calling, quote unquote, like I was working for a Christian aid organization and felt really like my, my work, my vocation had purpose. I was involved in church. So, so I kind of had done all the things I was supposed to do. And not only that, I, to be honest with you, I felt like I was a pretty good person. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was like yeah. doing my. I was like doing my daily quiet time. I was, you know, nice to people. I was a good neighbor. I had good friends. I, you know, I was. It was volunteering. I was a good citizen. All these things. And then I woke up one morning and realized, I'm struggling. I'm in spite of all these blessings. I'm not happy all the time. I feel restless. I feel frustrated at work at this perfect job that I found, like my dream job. I feel frustrated. I feel bored. I feel aggravated. I feel, you know, these underlying conflicts with this very nice man that I married. I feel just tired from serving the Lord. And I, and I was just really curious about this discontent. And whether or not I was allowed to feel that way, you know, and whether or not that was a sign that I was spiritually unfit. And so I kind of went down this rabbit hole, particularly in the area of work and vocation. What are these perceptions that we have of what work is supposed to be to us? The meaning that's supposed to be derived from our work and started doing study about the history of the way people have thought about work and vocation and calling over the years. And then that eventually led to me kind of exploring different areas of life. Like what, what are the expectations we're given about what a a certain choice, how a choice should play out, how it should be experienced emotionally? What are the emotions that we are promised if we are obedient and make all these good choices and do all the right things? And that's ultimately what led to the writing of the book, it, it got interrupted. I was, this is a book I was hoping to maybe get published three or four years ago, but it was interrupted by just a season of really profound difficulty the loss of my only sister, a season of pregnancy losses, and then the global pandemic. And that's what led me to write my first book, A Hole in the World, which is about grief rituals, because I just, I had to process what I was immediately going through then. But I always felt like this book was kind of like a stone in my shoe, nagging at me, wanting to be finished, story wanting to be told. And so I picked it back up and and finished it about a year and a half ago. So
0: first of all, your bibliography, I mean, so fabulous. I always look, when I read a good book with really like, Amanda's book just makes you think, hmm. and she has clearly done this research. So you have so many great references hmm. and Whenever I read a book that really makes me think, I go to the bibliography because you're going to find more books that you want to read. Yeah.
1: So- I hope so. If you read my book, I beg you, go read Alan Noble, go read Caitlin Beatty, go read Sky There's go read Wendell Berry. I mean, there's so many books, great books that I read as I was researching that, you know, the book really evolved as I was writing. And I went into it with a certain idea of what the outcome would be, like, how would I conclude? And that changed over time as I started gleaning from the wisdom of some of these other writers and, and, and thinkers.
0: And it's clear. So it's clear. It's such a well-written book because it's so well-researched. And in your humility, you're saying, you know, you learned along the way. This is why I think everyone should write a book. Everyone should write a book on their favorite subject and just the learning experience of it. Oh, I I, I agree. I agree, (laughs) Stephanie. I'm with you on that. (laughs) You introduced so many new concepts one was a new one to me entirely, and that is the emotional prosperity gospel. I would so love for you to talk about that. You talked about the nine elements, kind of nine elements, nine issues that we all face that are tainted by, I did an acronym by the EPG, mm. the emotional prosperity gospel. Nice. That's a big one. You don't have, you really need to buy her book and read it to get all of this. We're just going to let her top line it because there's so many great topics. But could you explain that for us?
1: I was thinking a lot about the prosperity gospel, the traditional prosperity gospel, which is this, you know, kind of 20th century expression of Protestant Christianity, which was the belief that if you, you know, if you were faithful to God, if you were a good Christian and you believed in believed strongly enough in God's power to heal, that He would make you healthy. And if you believed in God's power to make you prosperous, then He would give you a life of material abundance. This idea that God doesn't want you to suffer. God wants you to be happy, He wants you to be healthy, He wants you to be wealthy. And that's a that's an ideology that I've never subscribed to. In fact, most of the people I'm surrounded by in my communities of faith, reject the prosperity gospel and say, that's not in the Bible. Like we know that suffering is part of life. Jesus suffered. God's going to be with us in our suffering. We all die, right? Like there's no right. amount of, of faith will sometimes heal you from an illness. There are people that suffer from, um, you know, systemic injustices and are subjected to poverty and, and material lack. And so so I've rejected that, right? I've rejected the traditional prosperity Gospel. But what I realized along the way was that I had ascribed to a slightly more sinister, uh, or, or maybe just more um, kind of concealed iteration of the prosperity gospel, uh, a spin off, if you will, which was this idea that. God might not make you healthy and wealthy, but he doesn't want to make you, he wants to make you happy. He wants you to experience fulfillment and work. He wants you to experience joy in your relationships. He wants you to experience adventure in your life and purpose and meaning and have all these different emotional experiences. Once I kind of got my fingers around that term, I started to look at the different ways that that had manifest in my life in these different areas of my life and these different choices that I had made.
0: You know, all of what you just said makes perfect sense. I mean, when people say, well, God wants you to be happy, does he? Mm-hmm. Or does he just want us to be in relationship with him? He wants us to worship him. He wants us to trust him. So you kind of open up this, what I experienced when I read your book was this kind of Deep breath, you can take a deep breath and experience freedom from Mm -hmm. all those expectations. Right. Well, because that's the thing is that what the
1: emotional prosperity gospel does is give us a very specific definition of what happiness is. You know, it's, it's, I actually do believe, and I could, you know, spoiler alert for your listeners, I do conclude at the end of the book that I believe God does want us to be happy. I think he wants us to have a life of contentment in him. I just think happiness in Christ feels a lot different than what the world and what our Christian subculture often tells us it's going to feel like. The moment this really became solidified for me was when I walked through that season of grief that I mentioned before. I had this kind of assumption in in my mind that when I went through a catastrophic personal loss, that my sound theology of suffering would buoy me up out of the sorrow and out of the pain out of the grief and so then when i did lose my sister and it was awful i mean it was like torture i i didn't feel that sense of purpose in my pain that i thought i would i didn't i didn't see the silver linings and you know i didn't i didn't understand the redemptive story arc that god was telling in this narrative i, I just i didn't see any of that i didn't feel any of that i felt pain I thought maybe I must have done something wrong, right? Now I've failed. Maybe there's something wrong with my theology. Maybe God has abandoned me. Maybe there is no God. This is what happened when finally I realized, wait a minute, nothing in the Bible tells me that I'm not allowed to feel pain, that this is not allowed to be truly, truly hard. And so I was able to kind of fall into it, rest in, you know, kind of be at rest in that pain, knowing that I'd been given permission to do that. That's right. That's
0: what struck me in your book. And you talk a lot about this. I loved it. The normalization of uncomfortable feelings Mm -hmm. as a part of the Christian experience. This is not a failed Christian experience. This is a part. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you pointed to characters in the Bible, certainly Job, you know, plenty of people experienced uncomfortable feelings. And yet Jesus himself wept, right? So the whole idea of, you talked about the idea of other people being uncomfortable with our sadness. And Mm -hmm. so that's why we might get platitudes, right? Mm -hmm. It makes other people uncomfortable. And so they would like us to just be better. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh, And I'm so empathetic to that. You know what I mean? Like, I know, I know what it's like to feel like you're the elephant in the room for like an entire year after my sister's death and just people, I don't know what to say to her. I just want her to feel better. And and that's because they love me. You know, that's part of, of their expression of their love for me. But I think the people who did it the best or the people that felt like they were the most present with me in my pain were the people that didn't try to make me feel better, but the ones that just said, this is awful. This is terrible. Mm -hmm. I'm here what do you need as opposed to the people that said well you know you know everything happens for a reason or don't you see god at work in this or isn't it amazing how how god gives us the peace that passes understanding i was like no i haven't experienced that yet i'm in and the you were thick, honest about it. it yeah i'm in the you thick were of honest it. About it and i think it's true that eventually god does show us how he redeems all things and i think we learn a new relationship with the lord one in which pain and his presence can be you know held together in union but it just took a while to get there and we're such a rushed culture you know we're a microwave culture we are an instant gratification culture and we have to be patient with that
0: process you talked in the book exactly what you just said that contentment is essentially pain and joy being able to coexist yeah. Wow. It's not the elimination of pain. These are all human emotions. I so I'm doing too much talking. I just love hearing you elaborate. The whole idea we talked before we started, Amanda wrote this beautiful section about lament and lament really being a form of worship and it didn't hit me until like the book lamentations until you wrote that. I hadn't seen it in that way. Could you share your perspective about lament?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean Biblical scholars tell us that one-third of the Psalms, which is kind of our worship book in the Bible, one-third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, crying out to God, pretty audacious, you know, wailing and weeping before God, challenging God, even on his decisions sometimes. and. One thing I've noticed throughout scripture is you often see the prophets or the people of God calling for the wailing women to come. I write about this a lot in my first book about just the, the value of having wailers, like people literally crying aloud in this chaotic fashion uh, before the Lord. It's kind of a prophetic act to say, this is not how things should be. I think worship is anytime we agree with God about something that's true. When I say, Say that my sister's death is a tragedy, when we say that injustice in in the country is is wrong, when we say that, you know, illness is not part of God's design. when we say these things, I think we're agreeing with God. We're saying what should be and what should not be. So I think that's why lament is worship. It is it is standing in agreement with God. And I think if we were to to really understand that and believe that, then we would find a comfort in those Psalms that maybe sometimes feel uncomfortable to our modern 21st century optimistic American ears.
0: That's right. Well, and you talk a lot about, you know, our kind of self-help culture and our affirmation culture. And, you know, I'm reading something else that talks about affirmations, Mm -hmm. you know, affirmations. You can do it. You're gifted. You have all these. And those actually have a tendency to increase our self-focus. Mm-hmm. And when we increase our self-focus, we tend to become more insecure. Yeah. Oh man, I'm so glad you said that, Stephanie,
1: because I think part of the the conundrum of happiness in our culture is that we've come to believe that we because we're such an you know, we're an individualized autonomous Culture. Like we have way more control over our decisions, over our lives, over our outcomes than most generations before us. You know what I mean? Like we pick our own. We choose our own jobs. Most people in the history of the world have never done that. We choose where we want to live. We choose who our spouse is going to be. That's pretty unprecedented in the history of the world. But that gives us the illusion that we can control our happiness. So then all of a sudden, when we're not happy and things go wrong or things go flying off the rails, we think it's my fault. I've made bad choices. Like I've done this to myself. It's this myth of the American dream, this myth of the brighter horizons ahead that's kind of in the DNA. Of most Americans to believe that, gosh, I can accomplish a happy life for myself. And then when when we don't, when we're not happy, we sadness
0: feels like failure. Sadness feels like failure. I think that's that is it in a nutshell. And even within our Christian communities, these are hard things to admit to each other. Right. Right. The vulnerability of saying, you know, even even as you said in your grief, you naturally had doubt. Yeah. You know, exactly. And you talk in your book about. Thomas mm-hmm. and Thomas's doubts. How we tend to think of Thomas in that brief, you know, moment of his story about doubting, but actually, and could you elaborate on that story? Because oh. again, yours she's such a great theologian. I mean oh. really it's it's so theological. I'm like thank well, you for educating me on this. I, I stand on the shoulders of,
1: of giants, but poor Thomas. I, I feel for him and maybe I feel a connection to him because as I write in the book, I actually have seen I have allegedly seen his bones because I've I've spent quite a bit of time in southern India, which is where you know history tells us he went to be a missionary in southern India after the resurrection of Christ, and he was martyred there. And they claim to have a scrap of his bones there in southern India. And I went up to you know the the little church and the chapel that was dedicated to him and saw those bones there in that chapel. And so I I've, I don't know I feel a connection to him, but also because I I just feel bad for him because he's 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 memorialized by this moniker of doubting thomas when we see him again and again in in the rest of the gospel narrative showing great faith and showing great courage and pressing in with his questions and i hope none of us are remembered by our worst moments and i just wish we could hold those two things in tension about thomas like what if we called him faithful doubting thomas he was a man of both great faith And doubt. And that's okay. Those two things can coexist. Um, Daniel Taylor, one of my favorite authors, another great book to pick up. The Myth of Certainty is a phenomenal book written quite a a while ago. But he says in it, um, where there is doubt, faith finds its reason for being. And I just think that is such an important truth that it is in our moments of doubt that we need our faith the most. And those two things can coexist.
0: I love that. And I also think, you know, if we don't question, if we don't have doubts, is that an indication that we're not really thinking enough about it, that we're just on the surface of it? I mean, I'm saying this to myself. My belief has become strongest when I've gone through my periods of greatest doubt.
1: That's right. And, yeah.
0: And, you know, I thank you for educating us on Thomas. I need to read a little more closely. <laughs> Poor Thomas. Um, Everyone
1: give Thomas a chance. Give, give the guy a chance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have taken so many notes. One of the things you talked about was false beliefs, and mm-hmm. I think you've hit on a couple of false beliefs, but what are some of the other false beliefs that you've kind of challenged in this book to help, as I said, to help all of us think a little deeper about what we might be believing without even really realizing it? Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I think again, it's some, some of the, I talked, I get pretty granular about some specific areas of our life, parenting, marriage, this belief that, um, you know, the, the person you marry is supposed to be your one soulmate, the person that's going to bring you all your emotional relational fulfillment. Again, that's more of a 20th, 21st century Western mentality going into marriage. And some of that we get from, you know, church subculture that tells us that your spouse is going to be the person that leads you to Christ. And as you, you know, grow closer to one another, you grow closer to God. And some of those things are true, but we just, we place so much weight on that one relationship. You know, even even things like parenting that if you, you know, biblical womanhood is best embodied in the roles of wife and mother. And that's kind of some of the messages that were tacitly or overtly given in the church. And just coming to realize that if you don't find incredible joy in every single moment of motherhood, you're not crazy, you're not missing, you're not not wrong, you're not flawed. It's just part of the journey. And it can be wearisome to be a mother sometimes. It can be wearisome to be a caretaker, and that's okay.
0: And as you've talked about, you know, in our world today, and we say it over and over again, so I don't mean to sound like broken record, but there are so many opportunities for false comparison, mm. simply because we have so much social media and who puts pictures of the bad today on Instagram? I don't, you know, so
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah it's true. And we like- We only show our highlight reels, you know what I mean? And that constant messaging that other people have it better than me, other people are happy, other people are fulfilled, that can really
0: nag at you. That's right. So this is a tangent, but one, you're so funny. Her book is so funny. One of your stories about fear of flying mm. and fear of getting in an airplane, you, you draw a beautiful kind of metaphor in life of trust. But here's a fun fact, and I didn't know this until I read your book, more people get killed by donkeys a year than dying in aviation accidents. So that's encouraging. But what's up with the donkeys? I didn't know anyone died from donkeys
1: get kicked in the head or thrown off. I don't know. They're, they, they can be dangerous creatures, uh, according to this very important statistic that I read. So
0: so I would say stop hanging out with donkeys and don't worry yeah. about getting on the plane.
1: Yes, exactly. But
0: one of the quotes you had was from Kate Bowler. You quoted mm-hmm. her a couple times. The sin of arrogance. You just talked about this. I failed to love what was present and decided to love what was possible instead. So instead of this grass is greener thing we have all the time, you know, I, you know, just I'm old. So I've gone through all this stuff. It's like you learn, you know what, just water your own grass, whatever your job is, wherever you live, whoever your friends are, everything could be better if we just poured more love and intention into that. It's so much easier than moving or changing or, and you also talked about, I love this too, and it's in her book. So I'm not sharing any secrets, going to counseling with your husband. Mm -hmm. I've been to counseling a couple of times, and generally when you go to counseling is for a very clear reason, it's to get your husband fixed. Right. And then the, cou- the counselor surprises you with some opportunities for your own development. And, uh, I hate um, that. I hate when that happens. <laughs> I, excuse me. That's not why we're here. But what I loved was that she actually gave you permission for something at the time. You didn't hear it that way. Mm-hmm. But she said to you, Amanda, you need to make more girlfriends. Yeah. You need
1: friends. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you need, you need more people that can help hold some of your emotional needs and your need for connection. And she was right.
0: Well, and also, I, I also feared to this permission, you are still being a good wife, you're not being an inattentive wife. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're taking a little, you know, as my husband said, you know, women, I get off the phone with my sister, it's two hours. He's yeah, like, do you need a nice pack? I'm like, you know, You don't understand. Do you want me talking at you for two hours? No, I'm thankful that you have someone to call. So um, you touched on so many topics in your book, as you said, marriage and parenting and friendship. And, you know, if if faith is important to you, we want to be, you know, good followers of Christ, whatever that is. But what I learned from your book, it doesn't mean you have to be happy all the time.
1: Right. And certainly not happy based on the definitions that the world and culture at large gives us. There is so much beauty in the small, simple pleasures in life. God made this world such a delightful place to inhabit if we're willing to be present for some of those humble moments of happiness and 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 contentment. And that's to me is what I hope people take away from the book is that there's a lot of happiness to be found when we're willing to be present.
0: Yes. And I love that. And so I'll have all of this in the show notes, but for people who don't like to follow up on a website, could you tell us how to best find you? Where do we find you on social media website? Where do we find your book? Sure thing. Well, they can find me at
1: amandaheldopelt.com and I'm usually on Instagram at amandaheldopelt and sometimes on Twitter or whatever we call that app now. And you can find my books wherever books are sold.
0: That's right. And as well as your first book. So that's right. I want to thank you so much. You have made me very happy by coming on my podcast. So I appreciate that. Well, that's
1: a delight. Thank
0: you for having me, Stephanie. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. We hope you're inspired. And if you like the episode, please take a moment to go to your podcast platform and follow us and leave a review so more people can find us now go out and be the pivotal person that you are